Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we are back again, Martin. And it, look, I won't lie, he gave me crap for giving him crap about wearing a house coat. And today he's shown up and really pushed all the boat out by putting on what looks like a monk's uh, hobbit, uh, habit. Sorry, Martin, where did, where did you get that? Well, the force is with me, Tony. Yeah, yeah, and you've always had that look of a kind of Sith Lord rather than uh, <laughs> like, there's so many. There's literally, you know, the the Sith Lord half dead with the, with the, uh, the the dark light around your face. But nonetheless, it's 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 good to see you smiling, pal. Um, just do you mind me ask you, a few people have said to said to ask you before we kick off how are, how is your health at the moment? Oh crap! Utter 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 crap. <laughs> Would you not? Would you not talk it up for the benefit of the listeners? No, it's just not right. So I, I am uh, reticent. I think is the right word at the moment. I am reticent, um, and that spills over into quite shouty. Then when people annoy me. Well, look, we uh, look, we we, we do the, we do hope that, um, as I said before, that we, that we get another summer out of you. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't be counting. I I just want an MOT and back out the door, Tony. Yeah, um, right. Enough, enough of this tomfoolery. Uh, delighted to be rejoined on the podcast for for the first time this year by uh, a, a regular contributor over the last number of years, associate professor in UCD, Aidan Regan. Uh, Aidan, it's good to see you. How are you keeping? Good. Likewise. Thanks for thanks for inviting me on to talk. No, it's it's good. And um, we look. You're someone who I, I I follow. I remember the first time we spoke, and I talked about the amount of uh, how productive you were as as both an academic and as someone who spoke in the in the public arena and published pieces in in across the media. And you continue to put out output on a on a weekly basis and on a quarterly basis, whether it be in UCD in the papers that you that you continue to cover, which are which are. Um, academic colleagues and much of it is is about a political economy lately um and i would love to i'd love to pick your brains about some of that at the moment because quite often what we have is this you know um demons and and these ones and 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 but you talk about it in in a way that we're saying well actually this econ- this economic model is what's driving much of the polarization can so can i ask you first of all to maybe explain that idea so maybe listeners can get an idea of the concepts you talk about Sure, sure. I mean, there's, there's, kind of, there's a lot there. Uh, correct me if I misinterpret what I think the question is here, but yeah, I mean, I suppose the big kind of, I suppose one has to think about this over time and, you know, trying to analyze things over time is, is difficult because it's a moving beast, you know, it's like what Paul Pearson once described in his book, Politics in Time, that it's like, it's like a film, it's not a snapshot, right? And so it's trying to follow a moving picture. But so there's kind of big structural changes that have taken place in the economy over time. And, you know, over time, they build up to create certain, you know, outcomes, I think, which we can observe uh, politically at concrete points in time without distracting your, your listeners. But obviously, the big structural change in the economy is that we have this shift to what academics call, may not be the best term, but knowledge-based economies. And this kind of shift towards knowledge-based economy, what does that mean exactly? Well, one way to think about it is there's a lot more people with higher education, right? There's a lot more people with third-level education than there was in the past. I mean, if you think about back to the 60s, 70s, the idea that you would have uh, be high income um, and not have any, or the idea that you would have higher education and not be high income or not have home ownership would be unheard of, right? Even right up through the 70s, into the 80s, even into the 90s, even my parents, my father, I talked to him, you know, the idea, even in his mind, 
as a kind of man in his late 60s who was a bus driver, anybody who has a degree is like going to be rich, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> college education, further education, this is the, the pathway to university. But of course, that's just not true anymore. So we have, you know, depending on the country in question, even in a country like Ireland, that with 25 quarter of the population that would have higher education or quarter of the labor force, the workforce, should I say, that have third level education, but are on low incomes, right? Or low to middle income. Um, we have another 20, 25% of people who will be high income and higher education. So it's not to say that there's not higher education doesn't give you access to higher income. You know, in all probability, if you have a high income job today, you know, and you're in your 30s, 40s, you definitely have higher education. Again, that's different to the past again. So there is this kind of cohort, half the, half the workforce have higher education, let's say, or thereabouts, let's say about 45%, but that's going to split across the income divide. Um, and I think that has created a whole new structural dynamic because income is, and wealth is an important predictor of how one self-identifies on the left or the right. Education is a very important predictor of how one kind of self-identifies culturally liberally. You know, if you have higher education, in all probability, you're socially liberal, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're on the left on the economy. So this is what I kind of get at in, in my writings about the shift of knowledge-based economy, this kind of polarization effect that you see with the growth of higher education, but also this dispersion of lower income. And all of a sudden you have a cohort of voters who are higher educated, but low income. And that's the anchor of the center left today. If you go to most countries, the center left just wouldn't exist without those voters. And then it does it, you know, the typical narrative, and we can talk about this that you get in say places like the UK, it's like, oh, well, the left have abandoned the old working class. And it's like, no, it's just rather those older working class voters are actually in structural decline. Um, and if the left was only focused on older working class voters who have lower education and lower income, well, they wouldn't exist anymore because that's basically only 10, 15% of the vote force these days, you could say, right? Um, that's not to say that there's not lots of people, like half the po- people are working and, and are on relatively low incomes. But again, it's 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 much more intersected with education. Yes, I, I, I want to come, we keep this going, but I want to say something which is interesting that strikes me is that if you ever watch the US polling, they will say um, more so than, so say, we you talk, you know, people between ABC ones and, and, yeah. and the, the classes, they will say college educated white people, college yeah. edu- educated, and that's how they, and, and that is their grouping. So, so it's interesting to hear this is a way of how you framed it that maybe we should maybe adopt that practice of understanding what that means in terms of the education level sure. and where and where and where their where their political leanings are yeah yeah no I, I i think so and again it varies a lot by country because in the usa for example well not many people actually have college education because it's so expensive right so like having university education really is a privilege in the united states of america whereas in ireland you know between those who are between 25 35 it's Irish, let me put it differently, those who are aged between 25 and 35 have the highest levels of higher education in Ireland in the European Union, second only to Luxembourg, right? So we're, this is the whole mantra, well, we're higher educated, higher educated, but I, you know, so I agree with you though, it would be useful to distinguish these different groupings by specifying what is college educated though. Now, there is a part of me that's self-critical here because I can hear my own voice in the back of my head. What does higher education actually mean, right? Doesn't necessarily mean higher skilled, we're churning out graduates in UCD, they've got a degree, but you know, they're not as skilled as somebody who can plumb my house or rewire my house, for example. That's that's for me a higher skill level. And a lot of probability the person who's re-plumbing your house is going to be on a much higher income than the person who's graduated from UCD with a degree, for example. They may not get the type of income that a plumber would get today at 17, 8, or even say 25 years old until they're in their mid-40s. So again, the whole income thing disperses and it's, it's more complex. So yeah, it's about trying to both kind of some sort of sense to that complexity 
But no, I suppose to get to the, the final point again, the anchor of the left today is higher education, uh, but lower income um, and lower to middle income, to be more precise again, uh, which again is a very different demographic. It's typically a woman, works in public services, works in, say, or could be working in social care. Uh, that's the, or working in healthcare. That's the kind of the anchor of the left today. And I, we have no ads, we have no advertising. We can't, and we can't because can't do a podcast where we're talking about banks and then suddenly go to an advert where a bank is advertising. That stuff makes you pull your punches. When these people are, when you're beholding to them for money, you pull your punches. We don't do that here at the We've never done that. We have no advertising whatsoever. We rely completely on you, the listener. That's how we keep the lights on. That's how we keep the podcasts going out. And it does cost money. Trust me, this is now a free enterprise. Tony and I put a lot of work into keeping this podcast going. We put a lot of work into keeping this platform going. For the price of one cup of coffee, that's it, just like a latte. You can help keep the lights on in this place. You can help us to keep pumping out this stuff. And it's socially important stuff. We provide a service for people. There are so many podcasts there in the archive. If you click on the link, you go check. There is one to suit you. Without a doubt, there's one to suit you. There's one that will educate you. The one thing Tony and I find most of all, these podcasts educate us. Our guests educate us. We are better informed, make better decisions. We're able to do that because we're part of this. So look. For the price of one cup of coffee, you could be part of this too. Please click on the link, become a patron. Thank you. Can I can I ask about class as an element yeah. in this? Aiden? The people who are high edu- higher educated and earning more money as compared to those who are higher educated and earning less money, is class the factor? Yeah, I think it would be. It's an important question. So we like you find in the political science literature. The word that's used to describe this new growing cohort of higher educated, socially liberal, but low to middle income, that's the anchor of the left as or as or the, the, as the new middle class. I, in my writings, I prefer to use the term the new working class, right? For me, that cohort of people are the new working class. And, and that, so there is a class dimension to it, but I think you're right. If one was to unpack the data, and I can't think of it off the top of my head, I'm not even sure accurately or exists, but I would say you're probably quite right. Those who are probably higher income, higher educated, will be typically working in business, finance, professional service jobs. And the type of education that they have, therefore, would often be, you know, either studying economics or finance or business or marketing, let's say. So there's a self-selection effect in terms of what college program you obviously enroll into. But there is a very clear, there is a lot of research showing that those who do work or in, in economics in particular tend to come from very well higher ed you know upper middle class backgrounds basically so yeah it's an important it is an interesting question if you go again this is the question of time but, go back in time and, and this is what foundations let's say right so it might be the case of people like me or maybe yourselves you know don't have like hope for very working class backgrounds but certainly probably given our education for me at least relatively good income level couldn't be classified as that really anymore so but, you know, maybe if I had been born into an upper middle class family, I would have chosen to study straight economics and finance and be working in, I don't know, some corporate bank somewhere. But you see, you see, this is where I wanted to go with this conversation. So I'm delighted that this is where, where we've, we've gotten so quickly because the idea is now 
that that idea that that cohort that are maybe represented in certain parts of the government, let's tell the truth, predominantly Fine Gael and how it's driving, they're actually driving that economic model that you talk about that's creating the political polarization. And yeah. and some of them seem to think that, well, more what we need is more of this uh, to actually bridge the gap rather than um, actually, you know, it's kind of self-selecting in a way. And uh, that's what much of your writing and research has, ki- has kind of said to me. Uh, am I misreading it? Well, kind of yes and no. I mean, so I think economic polarization drives the political polarization, yes. And I think it's fair to say that in Ireland today, there is a politically polarized electorate. And I do think there's a very clear left-right divide. And I think underpinning that is these structural changes. You've got a lot of people out there who are relatively well-educated, but not on great incomes, no prospect of home ownership. And, you know, as we know, they're shifting very much to Sinn Féin. And it's the rise of Sinn Féin that has kind of created, you know, this kind of left voter, which someone could tease out, but if you didn't have Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin as a party there, you know, would that have happened? And that's an interesting debate, you know, because I don't think it would have went to the Labour Party, for example. Maybe some of it's going to the Social Democrats, a little bit to the Greens, but I think it really is about the rise of Sinn Féin. So I do think economic polarisation creates political polarisation. And, you know, in the Irish case, we have a particular type of economy and a very particular growth model, which is very qualitatively unique. It's very specific to Ireland. And it's not something that you see in other countries. And that's, of course, the whole foreign direct investment growth model. So the, obviously the country is very supportive. I can't imagine any government wanting to change that model, right? It does generate lots of good jobs. They are typically the higher income jobs that require higher levels of education. And therefore, you know, getting into those type of jobs, which may make up, let's say, I know, a small percentage, maximum 10% of the workforce, you know, that generates obviously the vast majority of income taxes, corporate taxes for the country, which in turn generates the conditions and the revenue to redistribute the fund public social services. What I don't think the government have ever really understood or appreciated is that there are consequences to this. And that when you have a kind of growth model, a high-tech FDI growth model like that, it certainly creates winners and losers. There are concentrated gains. There are concentrated wealth gains. Um, and not everybody directly benefits from it, but it also drives up prices, cost of housing, cost of rent, etc., cost of living that everybody else has to access. So when you talk to Americans, for example, and you tell them, well, have a look at actual individual consumption data in Ireland and have a look at what actual real disposable incomes people have, you know, between the 60th, between the 40th and 80th percentile, look at the type of graduate salaries that the vast majority of people have, they're shocked because most US graduates, for example, from university, would not expect to walk into a job for anything less than seventy or eighty thousand dollars. They then they meet people here in UCD who are expecting to graduate and earn with a master's degree a starting salary of maybe thirty-five, and in maybe ten years they'll get up to fifty grand. You know, they're not high salaries, not by any international measure of a high-tech, uh, you know, high-income, high-wealthy country. So there's all these distorting effects to the Irish growth model in terms of measurement, but ultimately I think the outcome is that it does break this polarization. And it does always, it always surprises me that it has not become more politicized. Um, but that, that's not to say that somehow the government should give up on this growth model because we're going to have too much of a of a good thing. And partially that's, that's what's going on here. Well, uh, I, I want to say, in addition to your high tech, high growth and high performing in parts of the industries, there's also the, the matter, the simple yes. fact of, of our servicing of corporation taxes in, in, as part of the global tax avoidance network and we are a, a link in a, in a chain there and it has been very 
lucrative for Ireland. That these are the, like I mean, what was it? Only it's only four years ago we brought in five billion in corporation tax. Now we're doing that a quarter. Yeah, no, it's like nearly almost thirty percent of total total revenue coming in from the corporate tax sector. Mm. I mean, they're expecting it to go up again this year. It could be as high as twenty five billion. You know, who knows? Um, and how sustainable that is? We've talked about it before. Uh, highly volatile. I think the government are doing the right thing by siphoning off some of it and putting it into a rainy day fund. I would personally like them to see them use that rainy day fund as an investment fund to build housing, but we can talk about that mm. or to finance the construction and development of housing. Um, but of course, the other expansion here, so where do where do where is this new middle class or new working class? Where do they work? Well, it's either in kind of private services or public services, right? Expansion of healthcare expansion of education, which typically comes with a higher income country, what's greater demands on, we need more teachers, we need more nurses, we need more doctors, etc. Um, but Ireland has not expanded its public services in the same way, for example, that Northern European countries have. So you look at the same kind of model in, say, Northern Europe and Scandinavia, who also have pretty robust export, large companies, more often than not indigenous, but they also attract a lot of foreign investment. But the public services are huge locally and, and, and nationally compared to, say, a country like Ireland. Which means that most of the people who want to graduate could work in education and healthcare often end up with really good jobs covered by collective bargaining. You know, means that they've got good pay, good economic security, home ownership is higher because they're a good bet for a bank to get a mortgage, etc. Or, or, or rental security is, our tenure is, is much more, like, I mean, we have had this huge emotional trauma of the last few months where people said, oh, we can't, we have to lift the eviction ban. We never had an eviction ban. We had a temporary moratorium on no-fault evictions. That's yeah. what we had. And most countries, that's actually a norm. Yeah. And yeah. yet there's not one, there's not one party really out there at the moment saying, um, you know, well, actually, why can't we have uh, no fault, a ban on no-fault evictions? You know, why can't yeah. we look at that? And yet they will, they will have the temerity, most of them, to say, yes, we need something like the Vienna model but they don't. If they were serious about it, they'd admit that that, that includes things like saying, "Actually, no. Uh, if you're a good tenant, you pay your rent on time, and you don't trash the place. Yeah. You know, you you can live there as long as you want to, effectively." Yeah. Um, so we have a problem there. But to go to 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 go to Martin's point about that um, drop off, then it's the, it's I suppose it's a broad question. It's more topical in a way that well, where we've seen now where you know everybody lost their minds because Holly Cairn said her generation is the first one worse off than, than their parents were at the same age. And someone said, well, sure, y'all have great smartphones and, and isn't Ryanair uh, flying you out of the country a lot cheaper nowadays. But the stats bear it out when you factor in cost of housing, cost of living. Uh, she, she, she's not... But first of all, this phenomenon isn't a phenomenon. It started in the US uh, almost a decade ago and, and we've seen it now filter through Western, the Anglo Anglosphere now. She's not in- incorrect. Uh, what, what's your take on the whole thing? No, I mean, she's she's apparently correct. But it, again, one has to distinguish two things here. Just because materially, say, a 30-year-old today, in Dublin at least, is worse off than a 30-year-old might have been in, say, 1993, doesn't mean that, you know, Dublin is a better place to live in the early nineties than today. They're kind of they're more subjective measures, right? And we could kind of get into that. But I, I think I think I wrote in the business post that I think the music was better in the early nineties. I think the football was better. But you know, would I go as far as to say that life was better? No, probably not. Um, but then again, we could piece that out. But ultimately, if you're a thirty year old today, you know, again, averages can be deceiving. But the average thirty year old today in Ireland you know, has real disposable income that might be slightly higher than, say, the average 30-year-old, say, in, in 
1993. But even then, that's questionable because real wage growth has stagnated for those cohorts, particularly you could unpack it. But how far that money travels and what you've been actually spend that money on, you know, what the cost of living has gone up. So, and obviously underpinning the biggest cost for any third year old in Dublin today in terms of disposable income is the cost of housing, particularly if they're in private rental housing. So that obviously just whacks everything out of order. So on that basis, you could say, yeah, materially a third year old today is worse off than a third year old in the early 90s. Now, I, 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 I have to sort of come in there. I was that person yeah. in Dublin in the 90s. So I was that young person working in Dublin in the 90s. The big difference, and it's a difference you've mentioned a couple of times in this. The big difference back then is I could have a single life as a young person um, on on a barman's salary or working in the service industries, whatever you did, you could. Now, hand to mouth, certainly, but you had, an, you had a place to live that you could call your own. You had a free independent life and you were an adult and it was the adult thing. But yeah. the big difference was everybody was in the same boat. Mm. There wasn't the class divide that exists now, or if there was, it was far less ostentatious than it is now. Interesting. Yeah. That's the difference. Is Dub Dublin a more livable city now than it was then? Certainly not. Certainly not. Interesting. Yeah. 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 It, it was far more livable, far more night friendly. Yeah. Um, I have to say, and I worked in Dublin city centre in Temple Bar. I know exactly what it was like. I was in the roughest areas. It walked through the No, it, it's not like it is now. And I mean that. I absolutely mean that. It is not the same city. And I think what also clearly has changed as well is the type of aspirations that people have. So if you were, if you were a master's graduate in 1993 from a university in Dublin, you were probably expecting to get a very good job with a very good income and home ownership was absolutely going to be guaranteed. Guaranteed. And not only a home ownership, but home ownership in what we would be perceived as a very middle-class area, right? Somebody who's that age now can't have that, doesn't have that aspiration. They might have the aspiration. <laughs> but it's not going to be mess, you know, and unless they've got a load of cash from mommy and daddy and they've got a load of inheritance coming through, this is back to your point about class, they most definitely are going to be able to buy a house in the middle class area, what we perceived as a middle class area. So I think that, that I think has ruptured a lot of the politics. And I think what Holly Kearns was touching on, I'm not sure, I'm not putting words in her mouth, but it's that kind of aspiring middle class voter who no longer has their aspirations being met, particularly when it comes to a certain type of lifestyle as it orients around home ownership. And of course, home ownership is more than just, as we all know, the four walls in the house. It's the community within which you live. It's like the schools that you want your kids to go to. It's the type of amenities that you expect to have. It's all those other things, you know, all those other social, cultural things that we connect with housing and where you live. And that's all been shattered. Um, and that's what I think underlines a lot of the grievances and why people are so pissed off. Um, and I think many politicians, I think of a certain generation, don't seem to understand that and they still don't seem to grasp that, which I find even more puzzling, you know, because I might not expect them to understand the data, but you think they'd pick up on the narrative at least and be able to have some sort of uh, understanding of it. But no, it's usually just these spoiled kids who won't eat too many avocados and whatnot. But it would suggest that there's an institutional memory amongst young people of what they're missing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And probably because things have changed so fast as well in Ireland, you know, because I think there's very few countries that have seen the type of gross income or sort of aggregate income growth over time from the 30s, say the past 30 years, 
like Ireland's kind of income levels have just exploded. And that's what the measure that you see a lot of economists use. Well, look, average income is significantly higher today than it was in the past. That's not a measure, obviously, of what the lifestyle or type of disposable income that somebody has who's 30 years old, easily somebody who's 30, you have to be much more specific about it. But it is true to say that income levels are much higher. And on average, in aggregate, standards of living are much higher. But that, of course, means that people have more expectations because they're constantly being told that Ireland is such a rich country, such a high country, everything's so wonderful. You know, you know yourselves, the media. But, this, but, 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 Aiden, but Aiden, if all, if we, okay, let's, let's pretend now that we're going to say, actually, that economic model that is, that has created this growth over the last 30 years, that's okay. We're going to live with that now. We're going to accept that. <laughs> But we're going to have to work seriously, more diligently on the redistribution part, because we—that's what we don't do. That like we, we, we in effect we have social transfers as a way of lifting people out of the at-risk of poverty levels. So we have a huge—I mean, what was it—a sixty-two percent uplift in in the amount of working poor in one year. Working poor, like that's 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 phenomenal in 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 a in a country that's boasting the highest growth in in the EU yet again. You know, we shouldn't. These things don't correlate. They shouldn't be the yeah. same thing. So, the political party that grasps that nettle, because none of them seem willing to, you know, rock the boat. Uh, whether it be Sinn Fein coming in, they're still saying, yes, we're committed to Ireland's tax regime. We're committed to our laws or our laws, and we don't would you know come here. The, keep the keep the waving pipes flowing. Okay, that's 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 the thing. So, but are any of them ever going to get serious about saying, "Well, actually, we need to see trickle down hasn't worked. How do we actually? How do we? How do we impose genuine um, redistribution as opposed to as Martin gets annoyed when we talk about social transfers because you just call you call them crumbs to the table and right. Well, so it's, it's charity from the wealthy to the poor. And it's it's all based on uh, morality decisions of the wealthy people. And that's what it's all based on. It's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's two things here, right? I don't think any political party is likely to grasp that nettle because to solve that problem is actually extremely complex. And I don't think they have the capacity to do it because it's actually not about redistribution. It's about pre-distribution, right? Mm. Well, how wages are di- uh, distributed in the, in the actual market economy itself, right? So... It is true to say, and this is what the economists always bang on about, even on the kind of liberal left economists, the few that exist, they'd say, look, yes, it is true. Market income inequality in Ireland is very high. Gross market incomes are extremely unequally distributed. That's, I would argue, partially, largely driven by the fact that we have this high-tech FDI growth model with lots of really good wages at the top, and not just in those key sectors, but they're kind of supporting sectors, legal accounting, et cetera, business finance. But you also have a large low-wage sector at the bottom. And as you know, a pretty, you know, one that has been relatively stagnant, notwithstanding all these different things, right? So market income inequalities are uniquely distributed, and Ireland looks a bit more like the USA, UK in that sense. Then the state steps in, taxes and redistributes, right? Taxes higher earners, and you have a very progressive income tax. That's why everybody, the government forever point out, we have the most progressive income tax in the world. It is statistically true, because we do tax actually higher incomes quite high and redistribute it downwards to the welfare state, such that our kind of, you know, our net income inequality levels, you know, look about average in the EU sets, right? And this is just the narrative that mostly, but so therefore it's a look, the welfare state is working and it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's a cash transfer heavy system. Cash is being basically taken off those who have it and be passed down to those who don't have it, right? But the more difficult question to answer is why is market, why are market income so unequally distributed in the first place, right? That to me is the real question and the real problem that needs to be solved. And no I don't see many political parties or politicians with an answer to that question. 
because you know mostly what they say is well we need increase social welfare or, we, or if, if they have a bigger understanding of these issues will expand the public services in the sense that we'll expand public sector employment so that more people can actually enter into the public sector to work in health education social care on good wages that are collectively bargained with real kind of wage extensions into the future that's what you'd really need to do and that's countries that have lower levels of wage inequality that is market wage inequality have bigger public sectors and they have more people who would otherwise be working in relatively low paid insecure precarious shitty jobs no disrespect to this to those jobs in relatively good paid, well-rewarded, highly valued jobs in the public sector. So are, is any government going to turn around and say, we need to expand our public services and employ loads more people? No, because to do that, they'd have to make a case for increasing taxes. Well, and, well, uh, and, and the interesting point on that and uh, is, the, is, is the facts bear it out because there was a, I was, I was asked would I go on uh, uh, an RTE show a few months ago to talk about the cap on bankers pay. And and I, I literally said, well, I kind of don't really agree with um, you know the the bank the cap on the pay. I think you negotiate your salary, and and it, like the 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 producer was aghast. Oh my God, this mad lefty says he's not really in favour. I said, but the fact of the matter is, they're looking to lift the the these salaries, the salaries that actually per size of you. If you take the size of a bank's balance sheet, it's a small credit union in parts of the UK and the yeah. salaries are half of what they're on offer you know so so if we're really honest about the marketplace of these salaries we're already paying quite well in, in many of these industries but of course that doesn't make for a good punch and judy show on 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 yeah. uh, on your radio show but so but, it, well, it, but just on that like so th- th- if there was an answer and in fairness they're, they're, the only party that I do say here saying this is actually the Labour Party who will actually make the case for trade unions who will actually make the case for collective bargaining will actually make the case for needing to have collectively negotiated wages. Now, Jed Nash, for example, has said that publicly. I would imagine ideologically the Social Democrats would agree, and I would imagine ideologically the Shinners would probably agree, but do they have a concrete platform policy to really push trade unions out there and to give them the capacity and the instruments and the ability to organize and mobilize, etc.? Because that's what you need to do. You'd need to, in order to, to basically reduce earnings differentials in the market and to increase the, the wages of those who are, let's just say, lower skilled. And I don't mean that normatively, who we would expect to get a better wage premium for it. Uh, you need to have collectively negotiated wages. And that means trade unions. Funny you say that. And, and trade union membership is on the increase in the US. And it's funny you say that. Let me just frame something some way and ask you this question. We've spoken about a class element. We've spoken about an education element. So we've spoken about uh, the driving force, which you've said is women um, on lower wages, professional women on lower wages. And I think that's important, professional women on lower wages. Is that factored into the thing? Because usually when we discuss things, it's, it's men are reaching a certain age and these are the driving factor of the decisions that are made within your government. But is there quietly, is it women of a certain age, well-educated professional jobs whose expectations are not being met by the current government policies who are actually the driving force of change? Yeah, I would go as far as to say most probably yes. I mean, certainly on, on key issues, obviously women were the driving force behind the... Uh, the kind of the, the, the liberalization of the abortion laws, etc. So, so all social change has been has yeah. been feminist driven in the last decade. Yeah, yeah. We need more of it, quite frankly, you know. And I think I would love to see women leading the charge on what I just mentioned, like collective bargaining and trade unionism, because that would also change the perception that this is some sort of 
old guys who work in manufacturing who are in unions. No, actually, the, the average trade union member in most European countries, particularly in Scandinavia, social democracies, is a woman who works in, in public and social services, right? Uh, in the care sector. Um, so that, that, that I would like to see them and their values driving forward social change, absolutely. But the thing about class is interesting because the question you asked me earlier on, um, Martin, is kind of lingering in the back, back of my mind as well about class and education. Because, like, so what is class, right? I mean, class is the ownership of wealth. Yeah. And most wealth is bound up in housing. So class is intimately connected to the ownership of housing wealth. So when we talk about this kind of this class polarization, I really do think it's intimately connected to unequal access to housing and unequal access to housing wealth. And I think there is a certain cohort of society who have more access to housing and housing wealth, mainly because they come from wealthy families, right? Where they have access to that cash inheritance. So it's that intergenerational class inequality that I think is compounding unequal access to housing, which I think is really key to understanding the political polarization that we're having here. I agree with you there to a degree. I agree with you that the dividing line is homeowner and not homeowner. That's the dividing line in society. But within homeowner, there are a few fairly significant dividing lines there as well. As we know, Tony, Tony will say half of households are reliant on a social transfer. That includes yeah. privately owned homes. You know, that yeah. does. So within that, so I'd say there's a further definition upon what's wealthy is if you have an income yeah. other than yeah. what you're I, of course, I, to I, Martin, you're right. I think you're right. There's a hierarchy to it, but... A homeowner is automatically much better off on 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 oh, the absolutely and and like the children of a homeowner is more likely to be actually be more have, have a higher educational attainment on the basis of stability. You know, it's simple things like that 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 sounds simple when you say them out loud, but we don't talk about it enough. And what I suppose, Aiden, what are, you, are we pushing here on the basis that that when it comes to housing and the fact that we're committed to a model that says. Um, uh, private development is going to be the, is going to be the delivery model. Even now, private development of social housing is predominantly like. I mean, I saw these statistics pushed out last year. We had seven and a half thousand public uh, housing units. Some county councils built zero. Many, like I think, it was South County Dublin. Actually, if you factor in the the last few years, and voids built less than zero because they've lost more stock. Right. So the councils, the government themselves, are not building them. They're saying they're building social housing units, but they're delivering them via turnkeys which they're purchasing from effectively private developers so are we locking ourselves into a situation by whereby the political class are are making themselves the minority now because the people are are going to keep looking at this Aiden and saying hang on the difference is that I actually am paying this money that's going to a Canadian pension fund every month and and yet everybody else uh, who you know this 22% of people seem to be doing all right and they're okay with it it could get. I'm not. I'm not saying it could get uh, bloody. Um, there could be uh, like civil disobedience, but sometimes there might need to be some more bloody protests about it because it's really happening now. It's kicking off where that 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 divide is. It's costing lives to the to the point where you know we we we're big on on measuring how much how many people die from you know different illnesses and viruses and the likes of but we don't really talk about how uh, structural inequality shortens lives as much as we should but this is this is what it's doing now yeah no it's a catastrophic situation uh and it's just it's it's incomprehensible 
why the kind of political will to make this like really a coordinated national emergency with a centralized executive team equivalent to what occurred during the financial crisis with, you know, basically hands-on direct management, direct accountability, reporting, joining up all the dots, getting all the, everybody with the resources, everybody with the capacity to solve this problem into a room and, you know, just getting on with it. And they haven't treated it with that level of emergency when it really is. You know, I had a very interesting conversation at the weekend, actually, with a homeless couple, uh, two travelers, met them outside a shop in Fibsbrook and got great, had chatting away to them for a good while. They were telling me that they'd lived in a tent in the Phoenix Park for a few years, but they loved it in the par- in the in the tent in the park. You know, they loved the nature. They loved that the security it gave them because they had their own little bit of space. They're in a homeless shelter now, have been for a couple of years, but they really don't like it. They have to get out at nine o'clock, come back at nine o'clock, can't cook for themselves, constantly insecure, etc. But I just felt this couple extremely wise, you know, and I thought what they were saying to me was just very wise. And they may not have had intelligence, smartness in the educated sense of the term, but you know, we can have too much kind of in smartness in the world and just not enough wisdom. And they were oozing with wisdom, you know, and, you know, it just, and then you see, see everybody has these stories, you know, which just the homelessness thing is just out of, it's just, it's just, it's, it's just disgraceful and it, it should not be allowed to happen. And you would want to have, why can't you just build kind of wooden chalets, the kind of short-term solutions? There's so many different things you can do on a short-term basis in order to kind of solve this problem. And I can, and therefore, not understandably, but consequently, you know, people see this and then they see, you know, refugees being housed and the crisis polarization of the refugees that are blaming. Ukrainians are being housed and the homeless people of, of our city are being left to sleep on the streets, etc. It's an absolutely catastrophic situation uh, and it's unforgivable um, how, how it has got to the point that it has. Now, again, it seems to me that the government for the past 10, 15 years, I'm not sure they think it now, but they did for at least 10 years. And it was the same government, you know, right? That you know, you're going to build expensive build to rent institutional investment. That's going to be you know two and a half grand a month. Those who work in the type of sectors we mentioned earlier on are well able to afford it. And I think there is a part of the housing market that would be able to afford that. And quite frankly, I'm not opposed to institutional investment in the build to rent sector for a certain segment of the market and for a certain segment of the private rental sector, which is the kind of you know the, the, the Google fine and, and the finance worker who's well able to do this, right? But even for that type of renter, it's perceived as short term. They typically want home ownership and they probably earn enough to be able to pay those crazy rents or high rents and accumulate savings and probably have access to cash to buy a house. But the idea that that's going to solve the housing problem or create affordable housing for pretty much the vast majority of people is just insane. And it always has been. And the government have just not had a solution to that bigger problem. You know, did they build enough public housing, social housing? No. Did they put in place the conditions to try to get it started when they're getting there? But for me, a large part of that problem, which, and again, there's, there, there, we talk about it as one problem. It's not. There's lots of different problems within that housing system. <laughs> and they all require specific concrete actions to solve each particular component and each part of that chain. But why that, like, local authorities should have been engaged 10, 15 years ago, given the resource, the capacity to do this stuff as well. Just see, you've probably seen it today, Tony. The Spanish government have announced that they're going to use their equipment of NAMA to build 50,000 houses. Yep. The Portuguese government have announced that they're basically going to mobilize any vacant homes to be used for social housing provision. And I will caveat it by saying that they will also pay the private rent and the private landlord, etc. Yep. So they're all, and these are both left-wing governments, right? There's clearly a partisan dimension to it. Partisan politics matters. Ideology matters. 
And that's why I think people are looking to Sinn Féin as the alternative, because even if they're not Shinners, or even there's, an, I think there's a large part in that vote that is not on the left either, but they're just like, God. <laughs> I, 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 wonder, I, I wonder if Sinn Féin are on the left, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. But that's, like, let me see you, let me see the colour of money when they get into government, Aidan. But I think that's a really good summation, because we do cover Portugal quite a bit with João Pina from the Portuguese government. And the plans that he came up when, if you recall, it's, it's, it's now about, what, two months ago, Martin, they announced their plans, as you said, Aidan. And yeah. all the headlines in Ireland were basically communism, radicals gone mad. And none of it was really that radical. It was still continuing. A lot of the private stuff, there was there was carrot and stick. So, you know, get this, get this property back into use or suffer the consequences of us paying you the rent to put someone in it. You know, yeah. like, um, nope. or, or, or sell it, sell it to us and we'll give you a capital gains tax exemption. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A really, and really. It's still, the, the language, the discourse, the narrative, the, the policy framework is so still heavily wedded to this market idea as if you can provide house, as if there's a market, a functional competitive market for housing, as if housing is like any other commodity, like buying and selling oil or gas or, you know, beef or water water paper mills or something no it's fundamentally different it's a housing system with different parts to it there is certainly a housing market within it whereby people do buy privately and it does operate broadly speaking to the kind of supply demand dynamic of competitive markets but that's actually a very small part of it right and it doesn't solve the problem of housing affordability i was shocked yesterday i turned on the radio usually i don't when i was cooking dinner around it was on rte i think and they had the ceo of the simon community and i i didn't know who it was but I just think, thinking to myself, God, this person, we need supply and demand to meet and we need to have, you know, more housing supply built and we need to get back to a properly functioning housing market. And I thought, geez, this must be some friend of from back 10 years ago. And then they announced that it was the CEO uh, of the Simon community. It's like, what? You know, they don't understand that the homelessness problem, the, the need to provide housing, affordable housing, accommodation, shelter to those who have a certain type of housing need will never be provided by the market. Not even right-wing libertarians think that, you know? So so it's just a lot. All she was doing was reading off a script. Clearly she had heard this. She, she kind of internalized this language, this narrative, and she's just kind of saying it back out again, not really thinking for herself about how to solve this particular problem, right? And that I thought was really, it, it, I thought to me, that was, for me, I was shocked. I think that's a great place to leave it, Aidan. I was going to ask you one more question, but I'm not, because I see you're already very passionate about this. And I was going to say to you, Asher, it doesn't matter anyway. We're all on the bloody wrong page. We're all going to be killed by lack of can, time, can, can, can actually? Can I ask <laughs> one? Can I? Can actually, Martin? There is one important question because it's something that Aidan is 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 passionate about. How can we, if we can't have that joined up twink, thinking on 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 housing, we're never we're not gonna, we're not really going to get serious about climate. Sure, we're not. No, Aidan. We're not. No, no. I mean, clearly, and not. the three of us are talking housing, and yet we know in the background that the tidal wave is. But and the, we know it's there. Uh, but but these things are connected, right? Mm. These things that you would you would like again, as soon as the whole climate emergency is framed as a cost that farmers or working class no income households are going to pick up the bill for, it's over. Mm. The, you've lost. It's finished. You know, it's just over. So the whole thing has to be framed as this. A wonderful opportunity to actually bring down the cost of living to improve our quality of life actually we can get better quality materials for housing that are more environmentally sustainable you know it's a different type of, and you need leadership to bring people along it just means thinking differently you can't have your concrete typical three bed semi d that looks has looked like for 30 or 40 years no actually we might need high density we might need you know more high density you know 
three or four, maybe five story buildings with a combination that compromises three, four bedroom, maybe two bedroom apartments with community. No, you need leadership to bring people along with those ideas and connect all these dots up together. But, you know, I'm not a politician, but that's the kind of polit- polit- political leadership you would need. Uh, but no, like, look what happened in France. Look what's happening in the Netherlands. You're probably following this as well. This kind yeah. of farmers movement. Look what happened in Poland. And or it's interesting to see in Poland today or, or this week as well, they're opposing the import of Ukrainian agricultural goods because they think it's going to drive down the cost of uh, goods for uh, Polish farmers. It's, you couldn't make it up, you know? So yeah, it's a really complex one, but I think we're going to see a big backlash in this yeah. space. And, you know, that's why we need, and you agree, Tony, you've been talking about this Many years. Now, you've made you forced me to politics. You know, you forced me to ask a question because <laughs> it's the obvious question to ask: Why aren't people like you in politics? Yeah, probably because yeah, I, I think. But it is an important question. Like, how do you get kind of good people into politics? Because yes. you know, I think the media thing is is a big put off for a lot of people. I think the media scrutiny, the kind of the constant kind of. You're just in the spotlight constantly. You can't really have a private life, you know. I think it's it's a difficult one, but I don't have an answer to but, it. But good politics is quiet politics. You know, good governance yeah. is quiet governance. You know, it just happens. It's, you know, I think a lot of people, just on, on a more serious, I think a lot of people would actually get involved in politics if we had a different type of electoral party system, whereby, not to say you would get rid of PRSTV, you could keep it, but you could have a list system, whereby parties, for example, could put people on a list that would actually get them into politics without them having to go around knocking on doors and shaking hands. And because our our political system really is is it's all patronage, about patronage. all about the individual and the individual. And you know, where if you have a system which most countries do, if you have a peer or representation system where people can go on the list and they're not the ones they have to be on the on, out talking to people on a day to day basis. You can have your you're kind of your politicians like you and another change I'd like to see is we is how somehow we devolve the whip system. Yeah, as I think there has to be space within parties for opposing views that can be expressed uh, as well, because I think that's a that's a block to people who maybe have certain views and they find themselves then ostracized and no and and you know I I know it's 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 kind of a lot of people enjoyed the podcast we did with Nessa Hergan recently and and thought you know it was it was we got a lot of good feedback a little bit a little bit of negative but one of the things that that struck me afterwards was you know whatever way you wanted to feel about it. The idea that, for example, Nessa had been working on a well-being index, right? Where does that work yeah. go now? Because that's important. More that's more important than some other stuff. Where does that work go now? Because yeah. because it's so so. You know, we need we need to think better than this. We have to absolutely allow for a dissent. There should be. There's look. We Absolutely. we've got we, oh, totally agree, and, and even if <clears throat> the idea that you would kick somebody off their committee work as well because of that is is, is, is bizarre, right? Mm. Um, we've basically inherited a Westminster parliamentary system, but we have a multi-party coalition system. You know, we've got these two things together, and they're intention. But we have to kind of Westminster civil service. We have the Westminster assumption that it's got a two-party model. We don't. We have a multi-party system. Coalitions are made up of multiple different parties. Therefore, you're going to have more dissent. You know, so I think you're right. I think we haven't, uh, I mean, it, it, an episode on parliamentary form and how to. Kind I, of, I, 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 I think, I, is, it, is, is it, if you're listening, David Kenny, I believe, is the man in, in Trinity, David. I'll, you'll be getting an email from me shortly. <laughs> so we just keep coming back to the old benign dictatorship, you know, and I do fit the bill. I do. <laughs> Listen, Aiden, that's been a really intriguing conversation. And thank you very much for having me. You're, you're right up there with Constantine for having interest, interesting conversations <laughs> with you. Just are, 
And uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Very insightful. Very insightful. Thanks. Thanks. Listen, folks, change attack for the next conversation. A young law student in Gaza will be joining us to talk about uh, life under the occupation and possibly a good bit about the college experience of, of someone cause who, who lives what we always call a, a, you know, a half-life. So that'll be an interesting one. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. And we'll talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.